you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2 as we continue tonight looking uh, towards the end of Colossians chapter 2. And so uh, specifically tonight we'll be looking at uh, verses uh, 18 and 19, but just to, uh, just to set the context and see, uh, see everything in this, uh, this entire applicational section at the end of chapter 2, uh, we'll go ahead and read uh, from verse 16 down to verse 23. And so Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by the lighting and self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were still living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These, matters are, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now, Tonight, as we continue considering these uh, conclusions that Paul draws in light of all that he had said in the earlier kind of middle chunk of chapter 2 concerning the the glories of Christ and of the gospel. Earlier in that section, he had laid out there for us who Jesus Christ is and what he has accomplished for all who trust in him. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we saw back in uh, verses 16 and 17, uh, Paul's words with respect to this Judaizing tendency of the false teaching that was coming. He said, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. He said those things were shadows. The substance belongs to Christ. There's no need and no profit to be found in returning to the shadows now that the reality toward which the shadows were pointing has come, namely Christ. And now here in verses 18 and 19, he shifts slightly to speak of another danger posed by these false teachers. And so he says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize, or as the ESV translated it, let no one disqualify you. And and that seems to be the idea, the word that is used here as uh, translated in the New American Standard as defrauding you of your prize or translated in the ESV as disqualify you is a, a compound word and, and one part of the, the compound comes from uh, the gymnastic contests and referred to a judge in such a contest and used broadly it was applied to someone who regulated and defined things in regard to the contest, kind of a judge basically of the contest. And then when the the other part of the word is added to form this compound word, it meant someone who did the judging and gave out the rewards in an unfair manner. 
John Chrysostom back in the ancient church said that the word is used when the victory is with one party and the prize with another. When though a victor, thou art thwarted. Or as John Davenant expressed it, the word as here used means to discharge this office, this office of a judge, perversely and unjustly to decide, not on the ground of right, but according to his own will to withdraw and take away the prize. And so Paul is saying, don't, don't let anybody do this. Don't let anybody come in and snatch the prize away. Paul's concern is that these false teachers are going to play such an unscrupulous part in the lives of those who had professed Christ. As it stood, these Colossians had professed the true gospel, professed faith in Christ, and Paul is now concerned for their perseverance. He's concerned that those who had begun to run would continue to run well. He's concerned that they keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. He's concerned that these false teachers would come in and, as we say, move the goalposts, that those who had professed Christ would be led astray, so as not to continue in the true faith, but rather that they would be moved away from the hope of the gospel and thus would miss out on the prize which was held before them in Christ. Now, just to to be clear, we're not speaking here of the loss of salvation as if these people would have possessed it and then then would have later be found to have lost it. That doesn't happen. Salvation, once it is possessed, is continued to be possessed. But we do know from the parable of the sower that there is the danger of seed, which sprouts and appears to be something, but it ends up to be found seed that was sown on, on rocky ground sprouted, and then was scorched. Or we know that there is also seed which grew up among the thorns, and perhaps that is the better analogy here for what Paul is concerned with. Seed that fell among the thorns grew up but was choked out by the thorns. Though not specifically mentioned by Jesus in the parable of the sower, false doctrine can certainly be a thorn which chokes out the word of God. Jesus described the situation of the thorns in Mark 4.19 as being the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. These things entering in, choking the word, and making it unfruitful. And certainly, turning aside from the gospel to falsehood would, would fit under that broad umbrella of the desire for other things. For whoever does something like that, turning away from Christ, away from the gospel to some soul-ruining, soul-destroying error, when they do that, they are no longer saying, as we sing in the hymn, I have no longings for another, I'm satisfied in him alone. Rather, they are saying, I have a longing for another. I'm not satisfied in him alone. There's something better or something in addition to him over here which I must have. And this is Paul's concern. He's concerned that these false teachers would worm their way into the hearts of the Colossians and draw them away from Christ into these soul-ruining errors. He says, as the ESV puts it, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Or as the New American Standard translates it, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. Now we can't be certain of the exact way in which this false teaching was playing out on the ground level, but it does seem as if there was some kind of asceticism, some kind of self-abasement, or the word simply can be translated as humility. Now, 
What's wrong with humility, you might ask? Humility is lauded and praised in the scriptures. We are commanded to be humble. We talked about that this morning. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, this humility in Christ. Well, of course, if it's godly and biblical humility, there's nothing wrong with it and everything right with it. But there is such a thing as a false humility. And by this, I don't mean simply a hypocritical humility, as if someone who appears to be humble is really proud on the inside. There's certainly problems with that. But a false humility and the kind of humility in view here may have been the kind of humility in which one would see their sins as so great and therefore the distance between themselves and God as so great and large a gap that they dare not approach God through his son, the mediator between God and man, who himself is also God, but rather that they feel that they must approach God by means of other mediators. In this case, particularly angels. And though this may seem like an absurd and ridiculous idea to us, this belief was something that had gained currency in the ancient world, still has currency today, right? Different pockets. That sinful mankind cannot approach God, cannot approach God the Father, nor even God the Son, who was made like unto us in all things, with the exception of sin. And so, if you cannot have access to God because your sins are too great, then what do you do? Well, one scheme of thought, and there are Many other schemes of thought in this regard, but one scheme is to approach the angels as mediators. And though it is wicked to use them as mediators, you can at least see the logic of it if you take the starting point of this false humility. Angels being neither God nor men, but ministering spirits might potentially serve as the link in the chain to restore fellowship between God and men if you take the starting premise of their false humility. And it's not immediately clear from what quarter this kind of false teaching might have arisen. Certainly, it could have come from a a Gentile background. I'm not greatly schooled in Platonic thought, but it certainly seems that uh, Platonic thought would have directed one in this direction toward the the worship of angels or, or demons. But the worship of angels was also present in the ancient Jewish community as well. As John Gill explained it, after the Babylonian captivity, they began to talk much of them and to have too high a veneration for them and to ascribe too much to them. And observing that the law was ordained, spoken, and given by them, and that the administration of things under the former dispensation was greatly by their means, they fell to worshiping them. And you can certainly see that, that uh, angels are present in the, in the Old Testament, they're used as, as messengers of God, and you can see how one step might lead to another in a downward kind of spiral to where ultimately they see angels as mediators and fall into worshiping them. And this kind of aberrant practice apparently continued long in these regions of the world and uh, for some centuries even after the apostolic age. And so long about the year 363, 364, or something like that, a synod was held in uh, the town of Laodicea. And Canon 35 of the Synod of Laodicea pronounced an anathema on this practice of the worship of angels, saying this, Christians must not forsake the church of God and go away and invoke angels 
and gather assemblies which things are forbidden. If therefore anyone shall be found engaged in this covert idolatry, let him be anathema, for he has forsaken our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and has gone over to idolatry. That's fair enough. This practice is wicked. And Paul continues in his description of these false teachers who would attempt to move the goalpost on these Christians, and he says that such people go into detail about what they have seen, and then in an ironic sort of twist, what started out as humility, right? this, this false humility, now morphs into pride, in that he says they are inflated without cause by their fleshly minds. They're too humble to go to God through the mediator whom God has ordained, but boy, they sure are proud of what they claim that they have seen, and they sure are proud of this system of intercession and worship that they have devised for themselves. But you can see how Paul cuts to the heart of of, uh, what is going on here in verse 19. Verse 19, he says that those who do such things are not holding fast to the head. That is to say they're not holding fast to the head of the church, the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ, when they do these things. Why? Why are they not holding fast to the head of the body? It's because they're giving way to idolatry, the worshiping of creatures rather than the creator, and because if they try to go to get to God through the intercession of angels, they are neglecting Christ. They're neglecting the very office to which he was appointed that of our mediator, that of our great high priest. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the head of the church. And you'll notice from Paul's words there in verse 19 that it is from him, from Christ, that the whole body is supplied and held together. Being united to Christ, we are therefore united to all who belong to Christ, to all who are part of his body. We are joined to one another and held together with one another through Christ in Christian love and in the unity of the Spirit. And we should also notice that this body, as it is joined to the head, it grows. Paul says it grows with a growth which is from God. By implication, then, anyone who does not hold fast to the head is cut off from that growth. Therefore, they are cut off from that life. Now, to bring this this passage around to us, I'll just begin by saying that it is not my pastoral sense that many of us are particularly struggling with the issue of seeking out angels as mediators or worshiping angels or anything of the sort. Now, I have known Christians who, in my estimation, have given an unhealthy emphasis to angels and to the ministry of angels, but I don't really have that sense about our congregation here. Now, if that's you, please take warning, let your ears perk up, be warned against this thing, right? No worshiping of angels, don't give them too much credit, they are ministering spirits, praise God for them, but do not worship them, do not seek their intercession or anything of that regard. We must have no other mediator other than Christ. But, Having said that, I would direct your attention by exhortation to two things, and these things are related. Number one, beware of false humility. And number two, hold fast to the head. Beware of false humility, hold fast to the head. 
And so, by calling you to beware of false humility, I mean not so much the false humility that would lead you to seek out angels as mediators, but rather false humility in the sense that it would keep you back from Christ. And let me just kind of give a a practical illustration of this. When we sin as Christians, we may sometimes feel a sense of guilt, a sense of shame, a sense of unworthiness to come into the presence of God. Call it false humility, call it shame, whatever term you want to use to describe it. Sometimes there is something there that keeps us back, that keeps us from coming into the presence of God in prayer, calling out for forgiveness, repenting of the sin, seeking to be restored to fellowship with God, and so on. Sometimes there is something in us, if we have a tender conscience, that causes us to draw back. Whatever it is and whatever name we might give to that impulse which keeps us from running to God through our mediator, Jesus Christ, let me just warn you that that is a tool in the hands of Satan. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He loves to accuse, to condemn, to stir up those feelings of guilt and shame, to stir up that false humility, and he loves to take advantage of those things so long as it can keep us back from going to God. Satan will use anything that he can to keep you from God. And if he finds a tender conscience burdened with shame and with guilt, he would love to use all of those things to keep a person away from God. If he finds a person, on the other hand, at the other end of the spectrum, with a seared or hardened conscience, he would love to use that to keep them away from the Lord. And he can and does use both. And so, here's the connection between the two points. In order to avoid this false humility, which would keep us from Christ, we must hold fast to the head. We must hold fast to Christ. And in order to do this, we need to start by keeping in mind who Jesus is. And that is, if we keep in mind the context here, that's the very thing that Paul has been reminding this church of, reminding them of who Jesus is. You see it in chapter 1, you see it in chapter 2. Chapter 1, he talks about how Jesus is the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. All things are made by him and for him, so that in all things he might come to have the first place. Here in chapter 2, we've seen how that in Christ incarnate, the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, that in him we are made complete, that in him we've been circumcised with this circumcision of Christ and the removal of the body of the flesh, that we've been made alive in him on account of what he has done for us on the cross. Likewise, to keep us from this false humility, we can remember the words of Hebrews. And I think uh, the end of Hebrews 4 and the beginning of Hebrews 5 is, is helpful to kind of keep all together. And so this is Hebrews 4, starting verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness. In other words, Jesus can sympathize with you. He can sympathize with me. 
He can sympathize with us in our weakness. If the high priests of old under the law could deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, how much more so our Lord Jesus Christ. He not only himself suffered when he was tempted, he knows our being. He formed our being. He knows that we are but dust. Think likewise of Hebrews 10, 19-22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so, in short, there is, there's no room in the Christian life for any kind of false humility that would keep us back from God. I think Fanny Crosby put it well. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Whatever your sins, whatever your failures, whatever your ignorances, come to God the Father through Jesus. Come. And even if you feel no hesitation about coming to God as a sinner, some of you may, some of you may not. If you don't, I say to you, still, hold fast to the head. Cling to Christ. Love Him. Worship Him. Obey Him. Draw your life and growth and strength from Him. Abide in him. Let his words abide in you. Let him be your all in all. He is the vine and we are the branches. If we abide in him and he in us, we will bear much fruit. And isn't that what we all want as Christians? To to bear much fruit, to be fruitful and to do good work for Jesus. I think that's what we all want. Therefore, let us abide in him. Let us call out to him in trouble. Let us pay attention to his word. And let us allow no one ever to lead us away from him. And if anyone ever does lead you astray, then the thing you need to do is to turn around immediately and run back to him and keep holding on to the head. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would keep us from being kept away from you, keep us from being pointed away from you. Father, we pray that we all would hold fast to Christ, that we would never fail to remember that Christ came for this purpose, came into the world to save sinners. Father, we pray that we would continually come to you through Christ on account of what he has done, that we would never turn away from his mediation, that we would never seek any other way or seek to avoid Christ as one who has sin too much. Father, we pray that we would hold fast to the head, that therefore we would grow together with all of your people, with a growth which is from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.